I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Romans this morning, chapter 1, the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 1. It's the great doctrinal treatise of the New Testament, the great book of Romans. Paul's letter to the church at Rome in the first century. All right? I'm going to read the first 17 verses this morning, make my remarks based on that text. So open to Romans chapter 1 this morning, where Paul writes this to the church. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as it is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would reveal to us this morning by your Holy Spirit the deep things of God from this, your Holy Word, preserved for us down through the ages by the trials and sufferings of apostles and prophets, reformers and translators, O Lord, to bring it to us. It is the written Word of God, Father. It is in our possession. And we are the church ordained to preach it to the world. Be with us as we do that this morning and empower us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul gives us... Paul, Paul takes a long time to introduce himself. Do you ever notice that? This is his salutation. He says, Paul, a bondservant, which is a little more than a slave, 
of Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed to introduce himself as a slave to Christ. He says that he's called to be an apostle. In other words, it wasn't his idea. Now you go back to the book of Acts and you'll find that Paul was called of God. He was on his way to persecute the church, but God called him out of that. So he's called to be an apostle. He's separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, he writes, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. David was Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather a thousand years earlier and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, the great proof of who Jesus was. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So that's who I am, he says, who are you? <laughs> but he gives his resume becomes his name, it seems. And so we have this lengthy but customary salutation of Paul to the church at Rome. Friends, Paul founded many churches, but he did not found the church of Rome. There's a school of thought that said Peter is the founder, friends. I think that's demonstrably untrue from history, and I'm not of the opinion that either Peter or Paul founded the church. However, due to it being founded by others who are not apostles, right, it became imperative that Paul introduce himself as the premier emissary of Christ in that day. He's the Apostle Paul. And it's his calling to direct you and to correct you, and if he must, to rebuke you as the church if your doctrine is wrong and your faith is on other things besides the truth of God's word. And so he wrote to them to assure that certain beliefs and practices are authoritatively taught among them. He is the authority, and he's, he's demanding that place in their lives. Now, Paul traveled around the Mediterranean to plant churches, as you famously know. But the process increased exponentially. In other words, some of the churches he planted sent out missionaries to plant other churches that Paul didn't plant. Churches he did not personally found were founded by other well-meaning believers. And that's the case with Rome. Paul did not just evangelize individuals, sort of the way we do today. He didn't just go around and procure all of these disparate uh, confessions of faith all over the place. When a few people got together in one place, he established churches there. Friends, the church is not ancillary. It's not, it's not a, a, a necessary evil or an option. The church, the founding of the church, is the cause of Christianity. It's the cause of Christ in the world. Oh, that we would follow the Apostle Paul's evangelism methods rather than some of the ones we use. Paul gathered people into churches. You may remember wherever he went. Remember when he went to the town of Thyatira and found Lydia there? And Lydia was a seller of purple. That's a product that comes from shellfish. So she was by the riverside with her ladies who worked in the business with her. And they all came to faith in Christ and began a church in her house. And it was very close to Philippi where... Um, there was the, the, if you remember, there was the fortune teller, 
Paul cast the demon out of her. She became a believer. And then he and Silas were put in jail. And, and God shook the world and the jail fell down. And they were all the prisoners were freed. And the jailer was about to kill himself because that's what a Roman jailer does when you get freed. Because you were in his care and he's responsible to keep you there. And Paul stopped him and said, we're not leaving. We're all here. And he gets saved as well. And they go to his house and they baptize him. And they baptize all the people there. And they start the great church in Philippi. And Paul later wrote a letter to them, the Philippians. And wrote a very kind letter to the Philippians. So Paul did found the churches. He founded the church at Ephesus. You may remember that story from the book of Acts. So Paul's a great founder of churches, but other churches were founded uh, without his help, and that was the case of Rome. And so he writes to them, having never been there. Friends, he's trying to let them know that a church is not simply a gathering of people with shared experiences, all right? The church is not Alcoholics Anonymous, It's not just a bunch of people getting together talking about their experiences. It's something else. It's not about how you came to Christ or how miraculous your conversion was. Although those things are important and we talk about them in the church. But a bunch of people getting together talking about their experiences is not the church. It's not about those things because it's not about you. It's not about the individual believer. It's not about any one individual saint. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's always where we look. And anything else, any other focus is called idolatry and is an abominable evil before God. So it's the apostles' great mission to keep Christ front and center in the churches. It's about the gathering of the sheep of the flock of God in order that we may continue to grow towards spiritual maturity. And the primary method of growing is teaching, hence the epistle to the Romans, one of the greatest teaching tools in the Christian faith. I would almost dare to say it's the greatest. And teaching's done by those who are called. He says, I'm called to be an apostle. And so the apostle writes that he's one such individual called to be an apostle. From 2 Corinthians, he says similarly, I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. You remember, he was not one of the original 12. He was called later, he said in one of his letters, as one born out of due time. Remember? And so he wrote to the Ephesians um, some of these same themes. He said, He who descended, or descended rather, is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave some to be apostles. Friends, not everyone is an apostle. Now there's a lot of theories about apostleship and about apostolic succession down through the ages. I am not a believer in any of those theories. I hold to the original 12, including Paul minus Judas. Those are the 12 apostles. They will be seated at the right hand of Christ in heaven as he reveals in the great book of Revelation. I have always been of that opinion. The church still has apostles, except they are in the church triumphant in heaven and with the prophets and the evangelists of old. And we are here in the church militant, still fighting the battle in the earth. But we look to the teaching of these apostles. There are some sects. I know that the Mormon Mormon, uh, sect believes in apostolic succession. If you go into their great temple, they have the offices of the apostles. And they're 
um, men who are alive today who in their, I think, very flawed view of Christianity uh, promote men as apostles today. Um, I've never been willing to do that, and I still don't. Apostles are a thing of the past, friends. There were 12. He gave some to be apostles. He gave some prophets. Not everyone's a prophet. He made some evangelists. And by evangelist here, he's talking about the writers of the Bible. They're called the evangelists. Particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the great evangelists of the New Testament. Only some were called to write scripture, not all. And he gave some to be pastors and teachers, and those continued down through the ages, and we still have the pastors and the teachers in the church. And what are they for? They're for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, he writes, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is Paul's nickname for the church. That's what he calls it. Christ is the head. The church is his body. Together, we are one being, joined together. And he says that the ministry is for the edifying of that body. Now, what does edify mean? Very simply, it means to build up. But not just any building up will do. The saints of God must be built up according to truth. And so he writes, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. Friends, at some point in our Christian life, we must have settled foundational, scripturally verifiable truths if we are to call ourselves the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is making sure is happening in a church he did not found. Children are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We don't just believe everything we hear. We don't just believe everything we are taught. We're not to be carried about with every wind of doctrine. We have to settle our beliefs at some point, friends. Christianity is a written religion. The Word of God is written. It is written down for our use. It is preserved for generations hence to have the same Word of God that we have. We have the same Word of God that Paul wrote in the first century. We have a written religion, and it's passed down from generation to generations. But beware that we do not add to the writing, because the writing has been closed. So we see that the church is intended to have unity. We're to be of one mind, he says, and that mind, he says elsewhere, is the mind of Christ. It's a great blessing that we have the mind of Christ. Friends, the mind of Christ is nothing more than the Word of God, the written Word of God, empowered in us by the Holy Spirit to understand it and to preach it. That's the mind of Christ that we have access to. What a great blessing. No other institution in the earth has access to the mind of Christ but the true churches of God. And so a church is not founded upon um, the essential truths, or rather a church that is not founded upon the essential truths of the gospel is no church at all. A church that does not teach these truths does not truly edify the saints. Rather than build up the saints, the false church would puff up the saints. A church that does not know these truths is a false church, or as 
Jesus said to John in the Revelation, a synagogue of Satan. And so the apostle takes great pains to assure that all who are called of Christ are fed by Christ. And the feeding began with the apostles, of which he is one. So I am Paul, he writes. It sounds to me like he knew his fame preceded him, and I'm going to labor that to some extent this morning. It seems he knew he'd be recognizable by name. And so he tells them he's the select servant of Christ, the Christ that you claim to follow. And so in his initial introduction to this church, it's necessary that he promote the idea that he is as much the reigning authority there in Rome as he is in the churches that he founded personally. It does not seem that his authority came into question here either, but it did in other places. And when it did, Paul was willing and able to defend it. In Corinth, he wrote to them this, We are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was you that we came, it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. He's assuring the Corinthians that he is the authority in the church in that time. To the Thessalonians, he said this, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Friends, truth is imperative, and the source of truth must be carefully guarded. Though the founding of the church at Rome may have been through qualified people, and authentic disciples of Christ. It's his commission to make certain that they have in their hands a unified, codified statement of the doctrines of Christ and the beliefs shared by all legitimate gatherings of the saints. Hence the great book of Romans. This is why he finds it so imperative that he write this lengthy doctrinal treatise to them. This is the, the longest of the epistles. Receiving a letter from this apostle is tantamount to receiving a word directly from the mind of God and from the intervention of the Holy Spirit. The apostle drives home the point that he is no spurious purveyor of divine mysteries. He's the real thing. He's the chosen vessel of God who's been appointed for this purpose. Nothing Peter, or rather neither Peter nor Paul, was involved with the founding of this church at Rome. Hence the need for authoritative teaching in the church that meets in the largest, most important city of the ancient world. Now we may marvel at the lengthy introduction of the epistle. The apostles' greeting is nothing less than a creed, or even a catechism, if you will. He declares that he's called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So friends, Paul is called out of the word, or out of the world, rather. Paul is called out of the world. When you get saved, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and it only comes upon you by the preaching of the word, James wrote in his epistle, put away all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. It is the word, friends. We don't save people apart from the word. 
And so he's called to be an apostle. He's separated to the gospel of God. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and applies the word to your heart and you're regenerated and made new, as the apostle says, a new creature in Christ Jesus, you suddenly and really miraculously have access to the word. But you also have become holy in a positional sense. When God says you're saved, you have been separated. Holiness means separated or consecrated. These are not religious terms. These are common terms. Holiness is to be separated to the work of Christ. So when you're saved into the church, friends, you're saved out of the world. And you leave that behind you, you see. So Paul is stating that here as an apostle. He's called and he's separated, and so are you. So he's called out of the world and he's called out of the worldly path that he's following. He's separated, which is another way of speaking of holiness. For holiness is separation. It's consecration, as I've said. God calls each of us for a purpose and he endows each of us with gifts. But those gifts are not merely for personal use. And I'm talking about the spiritual gifts, some of which are preaching and teaching. And those who are gifted of the Holy Spirit are called by God to do these things. The gifts, friends, are not for the individual. They are communal gifts. There is no point in having a gift of God and not being attached to the church of God because the gift is for the edification of the other saints. The spiritual gifts are of little use to the individual Christian. They've been given to the saints for mutual spiritual edification. He's talking about the church when he said God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The church of God, as I've said, is not ancillary. It's not just added on to the equation. It's not accidental. It's not dispensable, friends. Friends, I say it so often. The church is essential. Without the church, there's no Christianity. And so it's Paul's calling to perfect the churches. And perfection begins with knowledge. He writes elsewhere, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The leaders of the church must pray that the saints are filled with the knowledge of his will and use their gifts to make sure that happens. The knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding comes from the word. That you may walk worthy of the Lord. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing, once again, in the knowledge of God. Spiritual maturity comes with increasing knowledge, friends. Hence the gospel preached. I remember one time I asked an old friend of mine, Dave Kimball, who was a pastor for many years and the founder of the um, community chaplain service. You may remember Gwen, his wife, who recently passed at 100 years old. And Dave was my old friend and mentor, and I asked him, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And he said, well, Dan, I'm not really sure. 
But if you're not teaching, you're not preaching. In other words, preaching has to be about something. It isn't just a dance or an incantation or a repeat of a bunch of spiritual words. Preaching has to include teaching or it's not preaching. And I think Dave had it right. And so he goes on to say in his introduction that the gospel was promised. It didn't just come, it was promised of old. It was promised before through his prophets, he said. How? In the Holy Scriptures. So friends, the gospel's new. It's a new revelation, but it's not unannounced. The gospel is as much in the Old Testament as it was in the new, and I'll prove that to you right now. When Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, the only scriptures in existence were the Old Testament scriptures. Whenever Jesus preached, he preached from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Genesis for that matter. He had to use the Old Testament to preach the gospel, didn't he? I mean, it's demonstrable. The, the letters and the, and, the, um, and the gospels came out sporadically over the next couple of decades. But they weren't there in the beginning. When Stephen preached to the eunuch, what did he do? He preached from Isaiah. He said, how can I learn without someone to guide me through what is Isaiah saying about the prophet? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip came up into the chariot, you may remember, in the book of Acts. And he preaches the word to the Ethiopian eunuch from the Old Testament. That's all they had. The gospel wasn't new. There's a new revelation of it, of course, And it's much more clarified. We know much more about the nature of the Holy Spirit because of the New Testament. Friends, do you know in the Old Testament there's almost no mention of hell? And it's one of Jesus' most potent subjects. He talks about it a lot. Certain things were expanded upon and revealed in the New with Christ coming. So the gospel wasn't new, but it was unannounced. You may have heard it said, and I hope I don't trip over this, But the new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. Keep that in your head. So the gospel's new, but it's not unannounced. Those who were paying attention should have expected it. And some did. And those of old preached it in its fledgling form. We read this very thing from another epistle of Paul. From the book of Galatians, Paul wrote, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Friends, the Jews didn't know the Gentiles would be justified by faith. But the scripture knew. So the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen to this. The scripture preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Friends, Abraham was 2,000 years before Christ. And through the scripture, the gospel was preached to Abraham. And it said, in you all the nations shall be blessed. That was his personal revelation from God. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, he writes. So scripture preaches the gospel. Now, Paul preached by the Holy Spirit. We know that. Abraham preached by the Holy Spirit. Preachers today preached by the Holy Spirit with one difference. 
Our revelation is not new. Our revelation is old. Don't always be looking for the new thing. Do that with toothpaste and breakfast cereal. New and improved, it says on the package. New and improved. Make your teeth whiter, your breath fresher, right? New and improved, I don't know, Wonder Bread. Bill's Body, 12 Ways. Yeah, you're too young to remember that commercial. But things get new and improved, friend, but not the gospel. Give me that old-time religion as a song. Friends, the gospel's not new. It's 2,000 years old at its newest point. We have to be content with the old gospel. And believe me, we haven't perfected it yet. We, our understanding of it has not been perfected yet. So our revelation is old. And we dare not stray from doing what preachers should be doing this morning, which is expanding upon the revelation we already have in written form. Ours is a written religion. So we preached, filled with the discipline of the Holy Spirit to remain with that which is written. What's a person that has discipline called? A disciple. Same word, right? A disciple is a disciplined person. To depart from Scripture and declare that your words are from the Holy Spirit is blasphemy. I fear how often I see that done. I'm afraid that there are many who go about declaring this very thing. And so the scriptures warn against this. And so he writes, or rather we see from the book of Revelation, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written herein. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. Friends, no one knew there was a book of life until that, until that was written. Friends, Paul's salutation goes on to say that this gospel of Abraham concerns Christ. Friends, everyone is saved by Christ no matter what dispensation you are in. In Old Testament times, you were saved by looking forward to the Christ. You didn't know his name was Jesus of Nazareth, but you knew he was the promised emissary of God come to save your souls. And we get saved by looking back to that same Christ who becomes very um, demonstrably the hinge of history. The hinge of history. And I say demonstrably because just look at your dating system. What year is it? Well, it's January 2nd, 2022. Right? It's, that's because we started counting when Jesus was born. And if you want to know the, the dates before him, you count backwards from his date. He's truly the center of human history. And so he says, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, remember Paul's still introducing himself here, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, right? And declared to be the son of God. And so the same Jesus Christ that was prophesied in the Old Testament is declared having already come in the New Testament. And so the Son of God came, he writes, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I would say that is power. To be resurrected from the dead has to be the ultimate testimony of spiritual power, wouldn't you say? And so the Apostle declares at once his personal office within the church and the foundational beliefs of all those who declare themselves members of the church. We don't make up our beliefs. 
You know, I've had people say to me things like, I think the Christian church is very judgmental. Did you ever hear that? I've been told recently by one of the brothers that the, the most often quoted scripture in the New Testament is thou shalt not judge. And it's most often quoted because unbelievers love to say it to believers because they want to call us judgmental. Friends, homosexuality is something the Bible reveals to as counter to God's plan and therefore sin. And very often we're accused, especially in these woke times, to sort of lighten up on that. Um, I would say two things. Number one, there's no major religion in the world that sanctions homosexuality as being right before it's God. It's not just Christianity, but I'm just putting that out there, all right? Um, But I would say, you know, when you come into a faith, having faith in God means you don't get to make your own moral judgments. They're made for you. You either receive them or you don't. So when I say homosexuality is sin, I'm not judging anyone. God's already judged them. I'm just observing that he judged it that way. And I agree. Why? Because I have faith in him. I have faith that he's right. And so the apostle declares his personal office, and he reiterates the foundational beliefs. That's what the balance of the book of Romans is going to give us. Now, I'll bring to your attention at this point that though Paul is not the founder of this church, though he has not even visited it, you may remember from the, from the reading we just had, he hopes to visit it in the future, he said. He does end up in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, you'll see. Um, but though he's not visited them personally, though few of them knew him, though some of them did not know him, and others undoubtedly by this time knew of him. But in the final chapter of this book, he greets 26 individuals personally by name. So he knew some of the people that were there. Not the least of which were true very famous people, a couple, a Christian couple, named Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. I know you want me to say Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila. So I'll, I'll say it that way. But he writes this, My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, And he adds to this saying, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila may have founded this church. Now, we don't know that, but it meets in their house, according to what he wrote. So it seems the Christian world of the first century was kind of a small world. Do you ever get that feeling? You go around town and you see someone and say, oh, I know that guy. I used to go to church with him. He's a, you know, there's sort of a, a small world thing going on. So we first encounter this beloved couple in Acts 18. That's Priscilla and Aquila. And after these things, so this is from the the book of Acts. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, two great old Greek cities. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to get out of Rome. Claudius was the emperor then. And so he came to them. That's why they weren't in Rome at the time. Apparently, at this time, they had been able to go back. So because he was of the same trade, it says, he stayed with them and worked. 
For by occupation they were tent makers. So Paul's a tent maker and Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers and he stayed with them for a while. And he knew them well and he certainly taught them. So Priscilla and Aquila were Jews. They were rejected from Rome by order of Caesar Claudius. I put a note in your notes. Jesus was born in the time of Augustus, the emperor. Okay, He, he was the adopted son of and nephew, grand nephew of Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. His name was Octavian. Augustus was his title, all right? He was succeeded by Tiberius, who was succeeded by Caligula, and then Claudius from 41 to 54 AD, and Claudius eventually by Nero, who killed all the Christians and Paul with them, just to give some context. So we know that this is after the time of Claudius. We know from the rest of the chapter of Acts that this beloved couple were well instructed in the doctrines of Scripture and personally discipled some of the future leaders of the church, most notably Apollos, a man named Apollos, who fervently believed in Christ and had a great gift for bold preaching, but he was not ready to be a pastor, having only a partial understanding of the doctrines of the New Testament. These beloved saints, as Priscilla and Aquila, brought Apollos up to speed and sent him out to minister. That's how it worked. Paul would write of the necessity of elders of the church to be able to teach. Friends, an elder must be able to teach. That's one of the qualifications. It's a prerequisite to leadership. And uh, he wrote that uh, elsewhere in the book of 1 Timothy. He said, elders must be temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, behavior rather, hospitable, able to teach. And he goes on to add that he must be not a novice. What's a novice? It's a neophyte. It's someone who is recently become a Christian, not able to teach. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You know, I had said one time that self-righteousness is usually what happens to you when you're saved, and true righteousness comes with knowledge later. And that seems to be what he's saying here. Novices or young Christians are easily puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil, who was obviously puffed up with pride. So we can see that Paul was not a founder of the Roman church, but his influence was already being felt there through people like Priscilla and Aquila. I have no doubt that a need to hear from him a need to be taught the deep things of God with regard to life and worship was spurred on by disciples like those who are already in that church. Which probably accounts for how readily they well received the letter seems to be. Verse 7, he writes, To all who are in Rome, who are beloved of God, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we should open every worship service like this. Every letter we write to each other should be like this. To the saints who are in Lakeville, beloved of God, grace to you and peace through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, he said, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. Friends, the, the church is thankful for Paul. They're thankful for their, his loving leadership, but he's thankful for them. They're one body. So he thanks Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken out of throughout the whole world. So he commends them that their witness has gone out. And he wouldn't do that if it wasn't a good witness. So the leaders of the churches should be grateful for the existence of the churches. 
Friends, it makes me sad when people can't be here on Sunday morning, when so many are missing. I love to see the church come together. I live for the building of God's church, and so did Paul. I've always said that the one primary qualification to teach the people of God is to love the people of God. You know, very often a smart young man, and I'll tell you, we have a lot of very well-grounded men and women in our church um, who certainly could preach a sermon. Um, The tendency sometimes when you fill the pulpit is someone who has a sort of a Um, a pet love of a particular doctrine that he wants to push, that he sees lacking, and he wants to come in and sort of um, press that hard upon the body of Christ and this one chance that he gets. But friends, that's not what preaching's all about. Preaching is loving the souls of the people who are before you and dealing with them as, as a father to children, the Bible says. So I've always said that the one primary qualification to teach the people of God is to love the people of God. And this apostle was a man who truly loved the church. And whenever I'm away from my personal duties, for any reason, I fill this pulpit with a man who I know loves the souls of those to whom he's preaching. Paul wrote the same thing to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he said to the Thessalonians, a church he did found. He said, so affectionately longing for you. Now, why is he longing for them? Because he's not there. When you write a letter to someone, it's because you're not there. All right, so he founded the church, now he's off for some time. But he says, I am affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul is known for giving his life to the church. Remember it it said that he worked with Priscilla and Aquila in tent making? He He was... Supporting himself. He wasn't taking money from the church at that time. So the church of Rome was fulfilling its earthly ministry. Their faith, he writes, is spoken of throughout the whole world. And so we can see that Paul's purpose here is not to rebuke and correct, but to commend and to teach. So far as he knows, the Roman church is a true church. And so he writes less for correctional purposes and more for instructional. It's not always the way he writes in his epistles, but he seems to be doing that here. It's quite unlike how he wrote to the churches of Galatia when he wrote these words, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to a different gospel. And he goes on with that theme and he asks them, who has bewitched you? Who has led you away from the gospel of truth? To the Corinthians, he wrote this. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. So he does take the authority to correct when he needs to, but he's not doing that at this point with the book of Romans. Verse 9, he writes, God is my witness. I say that slowly so that you take it in. Be careful when you say that. God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul prays for the church. A leader must pray for the churches, especially the church he's given charge over. And so it's no light thing to call God 
your witness. I can't say to you, and I won't this morning, I call God as my witness that I pray without ceasing. Friends, I pray for you regularly. I pray for you by name. And I pray for you with knowledge of your needs. But I don't dare say without ceasing the way Paul said it. Certainly not calling God to witness that I say that blithely and perhaps untruthfully. To invoke the Spirit's prompting publicly is to put the Spirit to shame. People say blithely, I swear to God. Beware that you don't blaspheme when you say the Holy Spirit has directed you to do something that you've really just directed yourself to do. So to invoke his prompting publicly is to put the Spirit to shame if this thing you say or the revelation you claim to have does not come about. The punishment for false prophets was death by stoning, and the proof of false prophecy is that the prophecy didn't come about as predicted. Friends, I've seen so much false prophecy in my day. Big-name preachers. I've seen them make all kinds of prophecies about the end times, wrote books on the subject, got rich overdoing it, prophesied about government and who would be president and that they would be president. None of this came about. Why are these people walking about still talking? They are false prophets. You don't get to do that. You don't get to just make a mistake about prophecy if you've said that God gave you the prophecy. You want to be careful about that. Verses 11 and 12, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. What a lovely personal note. So he speaks of the special blessing of an apostle of Christ to impart spiritual gifts, presumably by the laying on of hands, which was a ceremony, a tradition. Spiritual gifts of a spiritual people. That is, people who have been filled with God's Spirit. No one else has spiritual gifts. People have other gifts. They have vocational gifts. Some people are very good artists or good plumbers, right? Um, But spiritual gifts are for spiritual people. And that doesn't mean spiritists. (laughs) I hear people say a lot, well, I'm not religious, but I'm really spiritual. Um, I feel very badly for you if you're not religious and you're spiritual. Well, I don't like organized religion. I know you're clearly a purveyor of disorganized religion. And so he writes, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each, or to each one, for the profit of all. The spiritual gifts you have, and you do have them, they're not for you. They're for us. My spiritual gifts are not for me. They're for us. A spiritual leader is not in competition with the brethren for power or for significance, but he's willing to share all things in common with the brethren. And so Paul writes, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. There's a mutual edification in this, and so Paul speaks of this relationship to this young church. Imagine calling the Roman church a young church. It's ancient now. 
Just as their reputation for faith is heralded far and wide, so was his reputation for spreading the word far and wide. Verse 15, he writes, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Are you ready to preach the gospel? Paul was ready to preach the gospel. I had no doubt. He didn't have to tell me that. I had no doubt Paul was ready to preach the gospel. Friends, the churches need the gospel preached to them. The churches need the gospel preached to them. He's saying, I want to come to the church and preach the gospel. I'm ready to do it. And the saints, as well as their leaders, ought to be ready to preach. Peter wrote about this. He said, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. That's for the Christian. There's a need for milk first. You know, the basic things of Christianity, both Peter and Paul called the milk of the word. And the higher doctrines are called the meat of the word. And so we begin with the milk, and then, and then later the solid food of the Spirit. And the churches never tire of hearing the word of God from the mouth of the apostles and of their pastors and teachers that God has placed among them. And the man of God must always be ready to preach. For preaching is the power of God unto salvation, the Bible says. It's a fearful thing to me to see that some of the churches make so little of preaching and so much of other things. You know, someone said recently, you know, Karen and Daniel, my wife and my oldest son are the musicians, so is James, but he's home with COVID at the time. But someone said, uh, so who leads your worship? Now, I knew what they meant. They meant who leads the music. That's not my nomenclature. Music is a part of worship. Let's call it an essential part of worship. The singing, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it's not worship. I mean, we speak today. I'll tell you who leads the worship. Pastor Bill leads the worship. Today, Donnie Colombo led the worship. All right? And the musicians lead us in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And, um, and I lead in the preaching, at least this day. And all these things together represent the worship service to God. So when someone says, who leads the worship? I, they usually mean, who's the singer or the band leader? And um, I've turned away from that. I mean, I let people say it. I don't get on everybody's case when they say it. But uh, maybe I should. Um, I was at a church service recently where there was, we walked in and the music was playing and the microphones were up there and the girls with the tambourines were doing a thing and the men were singing and the guitars were wailing and the guy in the drums was in his little cabinet made out of plexiglass. Why have it if you've got to shut it up, right? But anyways, I came in and they played and played and the people got up and the people sang and they, and they praised God and then the music stopped and this Poor, sad little pastor came up to this little, tiny, little plexiglass podium. And he said, I apologize for interrupting the worship. But I have a few words to say. And he spoke for five or six or eight minutes and sat down. And it started all over again. And I'm thinking, he's apologizing for preaching the word of God. Because he interrupted the, quote, worship. 
Paul says, I'm ready to preach. Do you know there's no discussion in the New Testament? There's discussion on every false doctrine, every false emphasis of life and worship, but there's no discussion on musical tastes. It simply wasn't a problem in a New Testament church, or Paul would have written a letter to it, right? It wasn't a problem, it was balanced. They sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but they had preaching. And the preaching was always the principal part of worship. It started as far back as Ezra in the Persian Empire, where Ezra got up in the newly rebuilt temple by Zerubbabel, and the wall was built by Nehemiah. And you go to the book of Nehemiah, and it says, Ezra got up on a wooden pulpit, and he read the word of God for six hours. And people had forgotten the, the language. They'd been exiled for so long that he sent, it says, secretaries or, or teachers out in among them so they could tell them what the word of God meant. That was the principal part of worship, teaching and preaching the word of God. It's a fearful thing that some of the churches make so little of preaching and so much of other things. Preaching is still the principal part. Paul said it to the Corinthians. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. Americans seek after rock and roll. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. To the Americans, a sad song. But both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I added a little to that that wasn't there. But seriously, friends, be ready to preach, he says. The last two verses, 16 and 17. Why does he say that? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Do you think that little pastor that got up and said, I'm sorry, do you think he was ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, they're having such a good time, I don't want to bum them out by telling them about sin. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, he said. Oh, let's leave the part that's the power of God to salvation out of the service. Or let's relegate it to a little puny part of the service. The path that's the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the gospel, right? It was written hundreds of years earlier by Habakkuk. Prophet Habakkuk in the Babylonian era. Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. If you ask me why some churches and pastors make light of preaching, I'll tell you it's because they're ashamed of the gospel. They'd rather sing and entertain. And friends, the singing is good and essential and glorifying to God. But it's not entertainment. That's why we all do it together. We're all praising God together as his church. And then we sit calmly before a prepared man of God who has prepared remarks, and he preaches the word of God, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, ready to preach. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the revelation of this, your Holy Spirit, to your Apostle Paul. I pray you have imparted it into with some great understanding into the saints this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.